creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk you're listening to the creative pep talk podcast i am your host andy j pizza oh my goodness gracious i cannot believe who we have on the podcast today it is author susan kane we just talked about susan's book in the last episode at the end and now she's on the show you might be one of the 31 million people who know Susan from her TED Talk on introverts or from her number one best-selling book on the same topic. It's called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Being sort of a covert introvert myself, I found all of that work to be very cathartic. The list of Susan's credentials are out of this world. For instance, LinkedIn named her the top sixth influencer in the world, just behind Richard Branson. All of that is absolutely huge, but none of that is really the reason I asked Susan to be on the show today. Susan is on the podcast today because of her new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. As someone with a character that personifies melancholy tattooed on my left arm, you can imagine that this book was kind of a spiritual encounter, and it really was. Like, no joke, I consumed this book in less than a day. It sent me into the most otherworldly stratosphere. And when Susan said that she would be on the podcast, I was blown away. As all of my loved ones can attest, I haven't shut up about this book. And when when she said she'd do the show, I was like, oh man, I cannot deal. And then the, to take it to the next level, the conversation was just a complete and utter gift. Now, not only do I want to have Susan on the show because the book is just incredible, but it's also a lot about creativity. A lot of creators have affinity for bittersweet, melancholic kind of side of life and Nothing makes most of us happier than a good, sad song, but this book actually directly and explicitly explores how this bittersweet disposition impacts and correlates with creatives. Like if you've ever just felt like, why am I such a sad, melancholic person? Or, you know, where does this come from? It's all tied into the creativity. And so I don't want to give anything else away because this was just a magical conversation and I want to let it speak for itself. So let's just go ahead and dive in with Susan Kane right after some quick shout outs to the sponsors. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. 
really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. feel so thankful for a piece of creative work that if you get the chance to thank the creator, you just feel like, I can't communicate how much this piece of work <laughs> meant to me. That's how I feel about your latest book. And so thank you so much for just giving me space to thank you, first of all. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And I have to say, I just got goosebumps at you saying that because I think it's that feeling that I have had about other people's creative works that has made me want to do creative work in the first yeah. place. Cause it's just the, I, I, I think it's the greatest feeling in the world. It really is. And I think, you know, honestly, I'm not going to lay it out on too thick. I'm not going to fanboy out too hard, but it's an understatement to say that I love the book because it felt genuinely like a spiritual kind of reawakening, you know, without getting deep into my story. It just did so many incredible things. And I'm a crass Midwesterner. And so like my dad is also a spiritual person and our shorthand for that feeling that you get, I don't want to say transcendent because that's, that's a little bit much, but we call it like when Neo and the Matrix can see the code, that feeling in life when you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm on another level. Your book sincerely put me in that space for several days and I was just kind of raw, but just in that heightened awareness. And so I just wanted to kick off by telling you like you did that for at least one person I can vouch for. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much. I really... I really cannot tell you how much that means to me. It, it's like, it's huge because that's exactly the space that I felt in as I was writing it. And all I wanted to do was find other people who know that space um, and yeah. be able to articulate it. And I don't know why it's such an important thing to be able to like connect with other people who have felt the same thing that you have felt, but... I think that's always been for me, my um, creative motivation. You did, you did it for me, and I just wanted to let you know. Based on the book, I knew that I assumed like that's what you're going for, and it hit me so hard that I just wanted to, I just wanted to kick off the conversation that way. So, fanboying aside, all right. Now we're gonna get into a real conversation. I'd love to start with 
you just telling us a little bit about the book as like a fellow deep diver, I feel uncomfortable asking you to introduce the book and topic of bittersweet in a kind of nutshell way, but I promise we're going to dive in deep in just a few minutes. Could you just like explain like generally what the book is about and what it, what the book is? So yeah, I mean the book, it's basically my quest of the last five or six or seven years, really my whole lifetime of understanding the power and meaning of a bittersweet and even melancholic view of life and how it's connected to creativity and to human connection and to transcendence and why it is that our culture is so blind to the value of this way of being, even though, you know, our wisdom traditions, our religions, our literary heritage, our artistic and musical traditions have all been speaking about this bittersweet view of the world for centuries and across cultures. So it's like it's it's all there for us to benefit from and live. And yet um, and yet our culture doesn't make it easy for us. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. And even the title alone, like the idea of bittersweet it reminds me of a quote that my listeners are sick of me saying, but it's just one that I think about all the time. And it's Joseph Campbell saying, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Yes. I feel like this book reminded me that the sweetness of life is not going to be found by running from the bitter or suppressing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. Okay. I mean, so bittersweetness, it's, it's basically about like a really deep recognition of the way in which this world is a world of joy and sorrow. It just is. There's no getting around it. And that everybody we love and everything we love most is only impermanent. Um, but that somehow what comes from that is such a deep sense of joy at, at how beautiful everything is. It's like the more you're aware of, um, the, the more you're, aware of the sorrow side of the equation, the more you're also aware of the beauty side. And what I was just going to tell you before is that I, I have spoken to a couple of people about this who, who talk sometimes about it being like um, difficult to engage with what you might call the, the darker side of life or the sorrow side of life, you know, that it's sort of hard to go there. And, yeah. and that's something I know to be true, but but I don't know what it's like to experience that because I, I would say, if anything, I've have the opposite situation, which is just like, I don't really know how you could not be engaged with that when it's so obviously um, a part of existence, you know, right alongside the yeah. beauty. I guess I just find it fascinating and also impossible to look away from that duality. And could you give an example of what, this bittersweet feeling or the, the bittersweet disposition feels like just because I'm aware of as we're defining it and you do such a good job in the book and that's why there's a whole book about it but I feel like a lot of artists are familiar with the feeling and I yeah. was just curious if you could kind of talk about when you get into that space and, and, and what that feeling feels like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so 
In the book, I describe the way I react to bittersweet music. And this is one version. I, I, I think people get there in different ways. But I, but I know sad music is very common for people. There's a feel, you know, so for me, I'm like obsessed with Leonard, Leonard Cohn. I love him. But not just him. I love lots and lots of bittersweet music. And But the uh, book is kind of a love letter to Leonard Cohen. It is a love letter to Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I hear him or that kind of music in general if I had to reduce the feeling to just one word it would be love it's I I feel like a tidal wave of love and it's a very specific kind of love it's like it's a feeling that the musician is expressing the sorrow that all humans have experienced at one time or another and told us that that he or she has felt it too and that everybody listening has felt it too and that we're all in it together and that not only that, but the musician is going to take the extra trouble of turning it into something very beautiful. And there's just a feeling of uh, feeling connected to the all through that transformation of pain into beauty. And whenever I have those moments of listening to that kind of music, you know, there's goosebumps and there's chills and there's, um, there's all of it. And what I've also noticed there is, is for a few minutes afterwards, I can like contemplate the fact that everyone I love like it will not be here forever, including me, and it doesn't bother me at those moments. Like it feels like oh, it's it's all okay. That's how it's supposed to be. And it's like the feeling doesn't last, but the fact that yeah. that there's something about bittersweet music that can carry you to that place of awareness is very. Um, there's something very remarkable in it, and it was really like trying to understand that that set me off on this quest in the first place. Like, why is it sad music that does that? I love happy yeah. music too and dance music, but and it makes me want to dance around and it makes me feel like happy and connected to my friends who I might be having dinner with when I'm listening to it, but it doesn't do all those other things. Um, so there's something about engaging with life's fragility that, that seems to be a magic key. Yeah, like it's so bizarre that in those sad reflective states that you would find the sweetest kind of side of life. And I, you know, I, as I hear you kind of, we're all, we're, we're kind of ruminating on a feeling and it just strikes me as a little bit funny having heard you on, you know, Brené Brown's podcast and, and Tim Ferriss's podcast and Ted talks and all these things. And I think, I hope it feels nice just to be in the space of creators who 99% of listeners are going to be like, yeah, let's just talk about our feelings. Like, let's just sit in this feeling and and, uh, and wrestle around and how good it feels to be there. So I hope I hope that feels like a a natural space for you because I know sometimes you're in these other podcasts and having to explain like why does what you know what's the ROI on bittersweet? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love it. Yes. Oh my gosh, so much. In fact, I actually said to the like marketing people at my publishing house, I was like, please, can we find creative audiences? Like, I really want to talk to creative audiences because I know 99% of creatives know exactly what I'm talking about instantly and have been trying to figure it out their whole lives too. Um, yeah. So yes, <laughs> it's, 
Yeah. And that's it's actually really funny, one of the, the ROI of bittersweet. I <laughs> yeah. love that. <laughs> I do think like I could imagine being in your shoes and being in the, you know, the Ted space and these thought leaders and all these people and um, just being put in these circumstances like, well, why? Why are we doing this? How is this going <laughs> to make us more money or what, you know, whatever. And in this space, in the creative space, I'm sure like listeners are just like, oh, yeah, let's just soak it in for what it is. Um, but speaking of creatives, one of the main, I mean, I really wanted to just get a chance to talk to you because your work meant so much to me, but, uh, added bonus that you have so much through this book is about creativity. You have a whole chapter on creativity and I wanted to kind of dive into that and see if you could share a little bit of what you found. There, there are so many astonishing correlations with the bittersweet disposition or being, you know, open to that and also being a creator. Yes. Could you just share like a few of those, some of those insights that you found? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many. And if I don't cover the ones that struck you the most, please just like shout them out. But um, sure, there's all these studies for one thing that have found that many of the most creative people, an astonishingly high percentage of them, were orphaned as children, uh, lost one parent or both parents before the age of 18, which of course is not to say that one must be orphaned in order to be uh, creative, but just that there, there's something about being thrust into this state of like deep existential longing that is intrinsic to the creative mindset. And there's also a huge connection between mood disorders and creativity. There's even this one study where they they took a group of unsuspecting people and had them give speeches to audiences and the but the audience unbeknownst to the speakers, the audiences had been directed how they should react to these speeches. So in half the cases, the audience was very receptive and appreciative. And in the other half, the audience looked very bored and disapproving. And so the people who gave the, the speeches to the the bored looking audiences were pretty bummed afterwards. They had both groups make collages afterwards, and those collages were then rated for creativity by a panel of artists. And they found that the people who had given the speeches to the disapproving-looking audiences created better collages than the other group did. And that effect was even more pronounced for people who had a hormonal profile that predisposed them to being more emotionally vulnerable in general. So it's like there's some connection between being in that emotionally open and vulnerable space that seems to be connected to creativity. Um, And I do want to say, like, I'm not talking about clinical depression, which I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, no, it's really important to say, you know, I mean, first of all, I don't think I think even if it were true that one were super creative when clinically depressed that it wouldn't be worth it. Um, even, even if it were true, but it's actually not true, uh, because the the, the studies show when people are clinically depressed, it's like very difficult to be creative, if not impossible, because, you know, you're in such a state of hopelessness and despair. But what I really think has been missing from our view of psychology in the current era is the fact that there is a profound distinction between clinical depression on the one hand and what I think of as the happiness of melancholy on the other hand. There is a happily melancholic state 
that is so connected to creativity um, that we're not paying enough attention to. You know, one of the things that uh, struck me about what you were saying in terms of, you know, that study where they come away with this, uh, this emotion that they want to unpack. And it's almost like in my own practice, I've seen the projects that are fueled by that kind of baggage almost. It's almost this uh, supercharged fuel that I can pull from. You have a really great quote from the book, and I don't have it here. I think it's right at the start of this chapter, and it's about all the sorrow. Do, do you have it uh, uh, Well, tell me. Tell me, tell me the quote you're thinking of, and it's and then it's something about all of the sorrow that you. Uh, let me just see if I. Oh, can I know. Are, do you mean yeah. like where I say, um, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your yes. creative offering? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it seems like that's pulling from after this, you know, after they have this bad experience, it's like you have all this stuff that you don't have anything to do with. Like, what do you do with it? One of the only things you can do with it is make something out of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and But it's not only like, I, I, I don't feel like the feeling is only like, well, there's nothing else I can do, so I might as well make something. I think it's more like... Uh, that at the same time that you're having whatever the pain is, there's also like a, like a rising upwards. That's the only way I can think of to describe it. Like a feeling of reaching outwards of a a sense of uplift of wanting to do something um, transformative with it. Yes. I I feel that too. What what were you going to say? Oh, this, I guess this is sort of a different point, but to what you were saying before, um, I, I, I guess I was curious what you thought about the representation of sadness in the movie Inside Out. You know, I, I wrote about oh, that yeah. in the book. Just for listeners who aren't familiar with the movie, it's a, a, a Pixar movie that's basically focused on the emotional life of an 11-year-old girl. And so you're not really seeing the girl so much. You're more seeing her emotions running around in her brain. And I talked to Pete Docter, the director who made the movie. Yeah. And... He initially was good, you know, and he had to choose, as any creator does, he had to choose one or two emotions to be the central protagonist. And so at first he chose joy and fear. And then he was like three years into the making of the movie and he realized it totally wasn't working. And and he spun into this panic state where he felt like he was going to be a a complete failure. The movie was going to be a failure. He was going to lose his career. Um, And he spun into this state of sadness and he realized that the sadness was because he was going to lose everyone and everything that he was most connected to. And it was like the the feeling of sadness was what made him, he started to realize that sadness itself was the essence of human connection. Um, and that it was that sadness has so much to teach us. So then he decides to make sadness the center of the movie. And, and at first he's like really worried that the executive board of Pixar is going to say, what are you crazy? You know, nobody wants sadness at at the center of a movie. No one's going to show up, but they, uh, but they followed him and, uh, and the movie did so well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's shocking. It's, I mean, it's shocking that a movie at that level could get that someone like Pete doctor could get that through 
just through all the checks and balances of marketing and you know <laughs> toys and every different level of really we're gonna we're gonna focus on sadness like I can imagine that just being a complete nightmare but it was so powerful and I am so grateful because I felt like growing up there was more stuff like that with 80s media not to mention that I'm kind of a collector of uh, because so much of my interest is the invisible world and yet I'm an illustrator. So that mm. doesn't really go together. Oh, it took me a so long time to kind of like make, make a, you know, bridge that gap. But I actually have collected anytime I run across like the personified invisible. I have a bunch of books from all, you know, I mean, honestly, it goes back to mythology. I think like the Greek uh, gods and goddesses are personified invisible forces. And I think there's mm -hmm. putting a name to something is super powerful, but putting a face to it means that it, it has all this other ability to engage. And so seeing something in popular culture right now at that level of, uh, you know, reach was just blew me away. And it also kind of reminds me of, you know, as you're saying, Tell, you know, explaining how, why it was powerful for kids potentially to see that sadness up on the screen. It reminded me of the story you tell in the book about uh, your kids and is it donkeys? Yes, yes. Yeah. Could you maybe tell that story? Because I feel like that, that kind of gets at why kids need that or it really gave word to like what Charlie Brown did for me as a kid. Oh yeah. And by the way, I'm such a huge peanuts lover. So I totally yes. get what you're talking about with Charlie Brown. Just sad um, jazz music as a kid. I didn't have any, I didn't know it was jazz. I didn't know what was going on, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I need this injected into me. Uh, uh, this is so, yeah. so powerful. And by the way, before I tell the donkey story, you know, I, I think I wrote this in the book. I can't remember, but Charles Schultz, the, you know, the creator of, of peanuts, he actually, he actually said later, he was like, I had no idea there were so many Charlie Browns in the world. Like I created this character and, and he had no idea what it was going to become. Yeah, um, like, that's amazing. That, that so many people would, would relate in different ways. Um, okay. But the story with the donkey donkeys is that um, when my kids were little, I have, two, I have two boys, we took this vacation where we rented a house in the countryside and the house was situated next to a field full of a field where, where lived two donkeys and, and the boys completely fell in love and spent the entire week feeding them carrots. That was all they wanted to do. And then came the day when they realized that we were going to have to go home and never see these donkeys again. And they were like crying themselves to sleep. They were absolutely heartbroken. You know, it was like their little hearts were experiencing the realization of finality, um, never again, never these donkeys again. And all the usual things that parents might say to soothe children did not work. You know, things like, well, another family will come and take care of the donkeys. You know, those kinds of things made no difference. The thing that, that made all the difference was when we said to them, you know what, this is part of life. This pain of saying goodbye is part of life. And in another, in a day or two, you're going to feel better and you're, you're going to remember 
the donkeys happily, but you're going to experience this pain again. And everybody does. This is part of what life is. It's hellos and it's goodbyes. It's all of it. And that was when they stopped crying because I think what we are really saying to them is this experience that you're having is normal. It's, it's to be expected. And it's like telling them that the sorrow that you see on the horizon is actually real. It's not an aberration because when we have to say goodbye, there's two things that are happening. You know, one thing is the pain of the goodbye, but then on top of all of that, they were experiencing the pain of like, this is not supposed to be happening. This is all wrong. And I'm like, I have to resist the wrongness of this. So if, if you can tell children and ourselves that this isn't wrong, this is actually part of the deal too, whether we like it or not, it's part of the deal. It's part of what we all experience. That removes a lot of the anguish from the situation. And it also, I feel like it, uh, in my own experience, it is a missed connection if we don't do that. And I just want to say thank you for this because it actually, a situation popped up right after reading your book. My kids just finished school and my seven-year-old just had the best year. You know, she hadn't been to school the previous year with all, you know, the pandemic and everything. And she had this teacher that she just adored. And she knew the teacher was going to go to a different school after that. And she thought, I probably won't ever see her again. And I was tempted to be like, well, we'll run into her. You know what? <laughs> all that kind of stuff. All the same things that you're saying, like that you want to tell you. You just impulsively want to remove the sorrow from the equation. And I was reminded of your story and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to ask her, I'm going to pull it out. Like what's sad about that? And we just, I just sat with her, hugged her. She bawled her eyes out. And the, the, you know, speaking of this, how Pete doctor said, like, this is the thing that bonds us later that night. And the next day she said several times to me in her own, like seven-year-old way, she's like, Dad, you were so nice to me yesterday. Mm. And I just thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, that was it. If I would have shut that down in the way that we tend to do, it would have not just, uh, you know, repressed it and maybe turned it all kinds of different, uh, unproductive ways. But it really is the, you know, shutting out the bitter side is shutting out the ability to connect with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that story just brought a tear to my eye. It's yeah. Well, I honestly, Lucky daughter. I, I would have, I, w- I would have handled that completely differently because, as you know, as a parent, watching your kid cry, you're just like, how do I stop this? It's just evolutionary, <laughs> totally. you know. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm like, man, and she's super tough too. Uh, unlike my other two, are just like me and my wife. We're all crybabies except for this little seven year old. So it's especially uh, <laughs> difficult. Um, I want to circle back to. Uh, the thing you mentioned about uh, those high numbers of creatives who are orphaned. And I, as I was reading that, it really hit me because on this podcast, I've been really open about how I have ADHD. I think I, I think I get it from my mom, but she has been undiagnosed. And, and I think for that reason, her life has just really been super uh, tragic. And I've that's been a big part of my story and I've, I've talked about it on stage and on this um, podcast. And so people are familiar with that. And I've had so many people come out and say, you know, this reminds me of my story. And I, I was just struck by the numbers of orphaned 
creators were super high. And I thought, what would those numbers be if it was like emotionally orphaned or mm. attachment or abandonment issues? Like why, like how many creators struggle with this? And I know that this is kind of part of your bittersweet disposition. Can you just tell us a little bit about how your relationship with your mom maybe impacted your impulse to create and write? Sure. And by the way, my answer to that, to your rhetorical question is I bet it's like 98 or 99% or something. <laughs> yes, I really think it has to be. And I thought, man, I wish we had that data because the amount of creators with that attachment, abandonment stuff, it's got to be through the roof. And it's just so fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. Though I will say, on the other hand, and I'll tell the story in a second, I, I mean, I don't know. I Like, I was drawn to creative stuff from the time I was very little before before the story that I'm about to tell. Um, yeah. So, so I don't know. More more to think about there, I guess. Sure. Um, I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone that way. Like, I, I think most people who've... Uh, follow a, an intensely creative path probably knew that was the direction they wanted to go from an early age. Don't you think? I think a lot of that impulse it sticks around when it's that intense for you. And, it, and maybe there's a piece there where it's like, what's the causal and what's the correlative? Like do, do creators just feel abandoned because they feel things more deeply like, I, I don't know, like, is that, you know, is it just that everybody deals with parental issues and the creators are the ones that are so emotionally receptive that they, they feel it on a deeper level? I don't, I don't know. But yeah, I do think that creative impulse is usually there from, from early on. But I also knew that it is, uh, it, there was like a really direct connection even to your diary and your journaling and, and, you know, you as a author, I just found that kind of curious and interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'll, I'll tell that story in a sec, but just to answer what you just said, uh, or to yeah. react to what you just said, I, I I think what I think is that all humans come into the world feeling a fundamental pain of separation, you know, like a sort of a sense that this isn't the world we were meant to be in. We belong to some other one. I think that's where the whole religious impulse comes from, uh, you know, to create other worlds or, you know, to long for Eden, to long for Zion, to long for Mecca, like to long for that other place that we belong to. Like even this children's book that I loved when I was a kid, Escape to Witch Mountain, you know, it was all about that. That's so much of the trope of children's stories. It's like the characters who really belong to this other magical place, but instead they're stuck, they're stuck over here and have to fight their way back. Um, So I think that's actually the key to the human soul. And but people who are drawn to the creative realm are just very acutely and directly in touch with that aspect of themselves. And then it ends up mapping onto their own, their own primary relationships too. But I think we kind of enter the world um, geared for that longing for the ultimate blissful reunion. Yes. Yeah, so the story that you're asking me about is like, so I had a very <laughs> Garden of Eden type of childhood relationship with my mother, who is an extremely sweet and loving, intimate type of person. And yeah, so it was just like, you know, she was just the warmest, 
most loving mother that you could possibly imagine. But she also had various psychological difficulties that I would say were kind of held at bay while I was in childhood. And I think our, our very relationship was sustaining to her, which helped hold those things at bay. But then when I hit adolescence and started to separate in the way that adolescents do, she took that really hard. I mean, I, I think many parents take that hard, but it was on a whole other level for her because it it just kind of triggered all her underlying vulnerabilities. And so she reacted in, in a very intense way to it that was really, 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 really painful for me. It was a kind of like feeling of being cast out of love, you know, and cast out of the Garden of Eden and all of it. I didn't use that Eden metaphor back then, but that's that, sure. that really is how I think about it now. And, you know, and because I was a writer all my life, I wrote it all down. I kept these diaries and I wrote in them for years and I carried them with me everywhere that I went and including to college. And when I got to college, the the, the struggles and the separation between my mother and me only got more and more intense. Um, and I wrote it all down. And then at the end of freshman year, my I, I had to, for some reason, send my bags home, but stay on campus for a, another couple of days at the end of the year. And my parents came to take my bags home for me. And they showed up on campus and they're about to walk away with my bags and I'm going to be home in another couple of days. And at the very last minute, I, I, I take my diaries and I hand them to my mother um, and say, hey, can you take these home for me, you know, just for safekeeping? And and I swear to God, like on a conscious level, that is all I was doing. I was just like, oh, yeah, I have nowhere to keep these diaries. So let me give them to mom. But of course, she read them. And and I was so I was so blind to what I was doing that when I got home and she was refusing to speak to me because of everything she had read in the diaries, I still wasn't quite sure that that was the reason she wasn't talking to me. I wasn't sure. Um I thought, could that really be? No, of course not. Um, but then, of course, I realized that it was. And after that, after everything, you know, all the painful things that I wrote down and all the painful things she read and everything we had already been through, our relationship really was never the same after that. We still had a relationship, but there was some fundamental way in which it was gone. It was like gone forever in a way that took me decades to recover from, um, by which I mean, I mean, I went on and had a good life and everything, but like I couldn't for decades, I, I, I could not speak about my mother without crying. Like even a very straightforward thing, like, you know, where's your mother from? Oh, my mother's from Brooklyn. Like just to say those words would have caused me to cry for decades and decades. It was like, uh, you know, this ultimate grief that I could not recover from. I never would have guessed this going into a creative podcast that these kinds of um, topics would be so resonant for the audience because I saw my my personal relationship to my mom and and kind of I had a similar thing of I you know my mom was my person and I that's the one I related to I was a mama's boy and she uh, left in the first couple years and I just always. I assumed that was a unique story for me. 
of mm. having that kind of thing. And so I'm just super grateful to uh, you for for sharing that in the book and sharing it on the show because I think so many creators just get so much of that mirroring that we've talked about of like, man, this just feels, I didn't know other people had that experience. Um, so I really appreciate it. And, and also I wanted to, I wanted to follow that up, but I wanted to, uh, how I thought about it was towards the end of the book, your mom ends up in a, in a different kind of place and, and the relationship changes. And I was, uh, you know, being intentionally vague so that it didn't spoil anything in the book. But, you know, the marked change that you highlight in the book is something that kind of happens to your mom and, and why she's different in her later years. But I was also struck by how this journey into the bittersweet really seemed to change you, you know, all the way back from, you know, the Leonard Cohen day, like the college days of um, you listening to funeral music, as you called it, or as your friend called it. Um, and then all through the deep dive and the research and this huge journey you went on writing this book, it seems like the journey into the bittersweet also changed you. And so you were showing up into that relationship with your mother differently. And so I just wanted to see what do you think that the this creative journey of creating this book what did it give you that you lacked and what did you bring uh, that was different um, in that later relationship with your mom? Do you yeah. feel like it, you came to it differently later on? Oh my God. So differently. So differently. I, I'm, you know, and you'll notice I can now, I can now say where my mother grew up without crying. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and I, and I really was worried about that. Like, I think I wrote about this. I can't remember that. Like as I was writing the book, I was actually talking to somebody and saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen when this book publishes because I'm going to be out in the media talking about it. And somebody might ask me about this and I might just start to weep and it's going to be really embarrassing. Notwithstanding that I'm writing about bittersweetness, it will still be embarrassing. Um, very on brand for the book, but, yeah, but, but excruciating to go through. Exactly. And um person I said this to, he was like, you know what, by the time you're done writing the book, you might be in a really different place. So talk to me again when you're done writing it. And when he said that, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's one of those nice things that people say, but it's not going to really happen that way. But it actually did happen that way. And I think the reason is that like, I came to I came to see that the relationship with my mother and, you know, and all the different losses and bereavements that I've been through and that we all have gone through. Um, I guess I just came to see them in this bittersweet context of like, of, I guess what I was just talking about a few minutes ago, about the way from the moment we enter the world, we're aware that of this feeling that we belong to some other world where these kinds of things don't happen and where the lions lay down with the lambs and, and the bereavements don't occur. You don't lose. You don't, we, we don't have to face this kind of loss and all of it. And, and I guess, I don't know. I spent a lot of time in this book, like investigating the different, the, the mystical sides of various religions and, 
was so struck by the way in every single one of of these mystical sides, you know, whether it's Sufism, which is the mystical side of Islam, or um, you know, the Kabbalah and Judaism, or the mystical side of Christianity, or in Hinduism, they're they're all talking about this longing, this deep fundamental longing that C.S. Lewis calls the inconsolable longing for we know not what. And the way in which the more we lean into that longing, the the closer we actually become to that for which we long, you know, which in religious terms, it means it brings you closer to God. Um, But even if you're not a religious person, there's still a way in which leaning into the longing brings you closer to to beauty and to truth and to love itself. And so I guess I've just been so immersed in this state of sweet longing that it's made me feel closer and in tune with a a kind of more generalized and diffuse sense of love that's not as much located in and or not as much dependent, let's say, on any one particular love relationship it's something like that it doesn't mean i mean you know my the love the the particular love relationships that i have are are still like incredibly intense and crucial and i would mourn them if i lost them i so i don't mean to minimize anything like that but just to say that there's another realm of of love experience that i've become more conscious of more aware of through through immersing myself in this bittersweet tradition. I feel like the the, the parts that you wrote about um, and what you kind of came across in the Sufi tradition of like the longing is it. Like yes. that kind of feeling kind of reframed it in a way, even with my own relationship to my mom. Uh yeah, what I I feel like, yeah, it, it's almost like um, one thing I wrote down, which I don't know if came from uh, a writing or a book or, or 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 from your book, but as I'm like reflecting of why are you entering that relationship from a different perspective later, it really hit me hard because you know, I'm someone, when you have that kind of relationship with, with a parent, it doesn't ever go away. Like there's that longing feeling is there forever. And I, even like weekly in my thirties, I can find myself thinking, I wish it had been different. I wish I could go back there. I wish I, you know, and I thought, uh, and it, your deep dive into this made it feel like, uh, that instead of longing for that home, you found the home in that longing. You're like, this is a, this is, that's what all the Sufi stuff, Sufi, um, uh, you know, things in your book kind of hit me with of like, this is a holy thing in itself. Yes. You know? it, it really, it really, really is. And, and the piece that you just said about, um, it's like the longing carries you closer to the home itself. It's so true. Yeah. And the, the, the Sufi teacher who, um, who's, who's teaching, I guess I spent the most time with Lo- Llewellyn Von Lee, who's just like amazing and 
um, people can find his his videos on YouTube. Just you know, just Google it'll it'll come right up. He's wonderful. Um, he 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 actually talks about how the longing for many people is the initial stage of their spiritual journey, and that over time the longing itself tends to like lessen a little bit, and and I think you you become more aware of the home itself and, and yeah. longing takes up less of the space, even though it's always there too. Um, and and, it I, feels like and I really have found, right. no, 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 that's okay. And I, I really have found that. Although I, I'm, I'm guessing this is a kind of ebb and flow thing. And so, you know, I'm, I happen to be at a moment in my life, especially because of having been so immersed in this for the last seven years, feeling like at a, at a way station where, where home feels more central than the longing itself. But I don't expect that to last. I expect that it will probably uh, shift back and forth over time. Yeah. And, you know, I do a good, I, I try really hard on this show not to, you know, I think there's done, there's been a lot of great work around the spiritual side of creativity but I try really hard not to default there for a whole mess of reasons, mainly because it gets messy in a way that's, uh, that, you know, I just, I don't want to be in the center of, but I, at the same time, I know that so many creators feel like their work has a sort of vocational calling aspect to it. And there is this mixture and what you're describing right there gets at this idea that the longing is the beginning of the journey. I think that was the spiritual reawakening that happened for me because having grown up in the Midwest, I grew up in, you know, exactly what you would think that would mean in terms of religion and ended up feeling like it, the the one I was raised in wasn't speaking to these deeper feelings, but I had never associated. This is the, the the number one thing that just changed me about the book is that I had never connected the dots in any real way between that obsession with melancholy and longing and how it is uh, completely connected to my spiritual journey or that it is the doorway. And that just broke open so many things. And so I, I love that you highlighted that as like that longing. And I and I the reason I love that you highlighted it was because I know that so many creators create out of a longing. And yes. yeah, I I feel like you're it's almost permission to give yourself to that like this matters on a on a deeper level than than just the the material. Oh my gosh, I I have such goosebumps as you're talking because like this what you just said about your experience or what you took away from reading the book is exactly exactly what I went through through writing it because I mean I really started this just trying to figure out what the heck that feeling was that sad music created in me I had no idea it was connected to spirituality I had no idea I was about to go off in this spiritual path when writing the book but yeah it's exactly you, you just expressed it perfectly that 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 it's that melancholic feeling itself um, that propels you in that direction um, and I think I included in the book this one 
uh, Hasidic parable that I came across where there's a, a rabbi who has an old man in his congregation and he notices that the old man is very indifferent to all his talk of God. And then the rabbi starts humming for the man a, a bittersweet, melancholic, yearning melody. And the man listens and he says, oh, now I understand what you were talking about all this time because I feel this intense longing to be united with God. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm that old man. You know, like I was indifferent all those years, uh, but I actually wasn't. It was just there all along in a different form. And it gives, it gives this kind of, what I hope people take from it, creators especially, is just the, what I loved about the book is it doesn't, it doesn't in any way diminish the harsh reality of the world. In fact, it's really an exploration of that in so many ways. And yet coming out the other side, not with a definitive kind of spiritual takeaway or answer, but just the reframing that yearning and longing the way that you have gives permission to like steward it and, and, and keep it safe and, and, and spend time giving over your creativity to it. And I think a lot of people, as they hear this interview and then dive into the book, they're going to get a well of like, this is like in whatever mystical way I can think of it, holy work. Wow. Well, I mean, thank you. It's like the ultimate compliment. It's the ultimate compliment. And, you know, and I think it's a way station. We'll see. We'll see um, where it leads. But I, I do hope it could be something like that for people. And I mean, yeah, to your point about not wanting to um, like whitewash the troubles of the world, like really quite the contrary. The other great metaphor that I took away from all these explorations that I found really helped me to deal with with the way in which in this life um, so much beauty sits alongside so much pain. And like, I, I could never figure out what, to, like how to make sense of that. But there's the, this, uh, this metaphor from the Kabbalah that, uh, that says that all of divinity was, I'm sorry, all of creation was originally like an intact and divine vessel that at some point shattered and that the world that we live in now is the broke is, yeah, it's the broken world. It's like after the shattering. So there's all this pain and tragedy and evil. And yet at the same time, there are the shards of that divine vessel that are scattered everywhere around us. And we can still bend down and pick them up. And I, I find that like as a metaphor of how to live just incredibly hopeful and useful, like the idea that that yeah, it's enough to bend down to, to notice to notice the shards that you notice, which are different from the ones I'm going to notice, and to bend down and pick them up wherever you can, and that's your life's work. I love that. Like I think that's something yeah. that we can all manage and and aspire to. Yeah, that's really powerful, and I uh, and I get the sense of when you're in that zone, you are. Uh, I think that the tragedy stepping into that you're you are you know something that's awful getting destroyed isn't tragic and i think there's something about how you're describing stepping into 
that reality, you get a sense of, well, this must have been really, really good if it's this sad that it's broken. Yeah. And that, that, that's what that picture that you shared kind of made me conjure. And that, that feeling is like, let's put some stuff back. Let's put some of these shards back together. Like let's pick up ones and like, uh, that feels like what the creators, uh, are doing. Yeah. Like when you're creating an illustration, I think you're like, you're trying like for a moment in time, you know, to create some work that represents perfect beauty and love and intactness. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. it never lives up to that, which you're dreaming of. But I think just the sheer act of trying to do that is what it's for. Yeah, I completely agree. I have one other question if you have time for it. Can, yeah, can sure. I, can I go there? Yeah. Um, I The other side of this, I, I really wanted to give most of the time to uh, exploring the topic because it's just uh, has so many implications. But at the same time, you're a creator in your own right. And one of the things that, I feel I really need to learn from you. And I think so many of the listeners struggle with this very thing that you do so well. You know, when you go about exploring a topic, your previous book was about um, introverts and uh, this topic on bittersweet, you do this giant deep dive into a topic. And I feel like there are so many kind of creative tools and, uh, you know, there, there's so many reasons why that's such a good process for a lot of creators, but such an elusive one because of FOMO, because of not trusting yourself, like all these different reasons. Do you have any advice about how to trust yourself or find those threads that you want to dive this deep on and, and stay focused? Like, how do you do that? Hmm. Um, well, I guess I think it's only worth it to do creative work if it's something you care about in some crazy, passionate way. So I've had other topics that I've started exploring and then kind of abandoned along the way because I didn't care about it in that all-consuming way. So and, and so I think, I think when you know it when when you care that deeply. Um, I guess for me, I don't, but well, I think this would probably apply to a lot of people that a lot of the reason for me of either trying to create something myself or to engage with somebody else's creative work is that they're expressing something that doesn't get said in normal or doesn't get expressed in normal everyday life. And when you get hold of a truth like that, that you really want to explore that that isn't otherwise articulated, it just feels so worthwhile that it carries you along. But I will also give you like the sort of more practical hack aspect mm, of this, yeah. which is that I've, I, I think I inadvertently trained myself to love the writing process because so I really love my coffee high that I get and I yeah, only allow myself to drink coffee when I'm writing. I don't drink it any other time ever. So That's I associate. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so I associate writing with the coffee high and then I eat some chocolate and I light my candle. Like I make the whole experience like really lovely. So 
when I'm on vacation with my family, like I insist on having my two or three hours a day alone with my writing, even on vacation, because I feel cheated if I'm not getting it because I associate it with all these good things. So that's my hack. I love that. And I, I think, so you, you said a few things there I want to highlight. So, uh, you know, I totally, that hit me hard of like, build your practice on those little truths that you are just frustrated to communicate that they don't fit into. You never get anybody to sit down long enough for you to be like, let me just tell you about this thing. Like, and if that, that impulse, like pick one of those things to build your projects on, uh, that's a, that's huge. Um, another one that, uh, you said was, the second piece was dang it, I lost it. Uh, I'll I'll review it afterwards. I'm trying but to remember too. I know I can't remember what it is. That's my that's my ADHD coming in. But I there yeah. So pick pick one that you know that you can go deep on. That that's absolutely huge. The but the coffee hack of bundling something that that you want to just naturally return to. I think that's, that's just fantastic. I'm going to use, I'm going to, I don't think I can do it with coffee, but just to, is it because you love it I, too much? You have to, I use love it, it too much. You have to yeah, drink I it other times too. too. But yeah. I do. Yeah, I do write every morning um, with my coffee. And so I do think there's some, some, something there, but I think that is just a, a fantastic hack to get over that resistance to sitting down and, and doing the thing. The, the last piece of that was, along with picking that topic and trusting it, you also did something that I think is such a good move, but such a difficult move as a creator. You trusted yourself enough to dive into two topics that were at least on the surface, almost certainly polarizing. If you're thinking about introverts and extroverts, you're almost literally saying, and I know that these topics are indeed for a a much wider group of people than it seems on the surface. But just, I just imagined like diving into the level of, I mean, introverts is one thing where you're splitting people off, but you probably wouldn't have any real idea how, what portion of the, the world has that bittersweet disposition or wants to deep dive into this. I just imagine you just pulling at that thread and just, I always think like there's a faith component to making work where you're just trusting that if you like this thing, there's something there. How Did you feel like that as you were going deep into bittersweet? Like, is this, but then on the other side of these two things, they seem like so timely, you know, on the other side of the journey, it's like, man, of, of course, it's so obvious that we needed that. That's how I felt after reading it. How, do you, does that, it's not a question. It's a pile of words, but I'm just like, do you, how do you do that? How do you trust your gut enough, even through the voice in your head that might be like, this is super polarizing. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, I don't think of either of these topics as polarizing really, because like even my first book, Quiet, I didn't, I didn't feel it was anti-extrovert in any way. I think occasionally it gets seen that way, but but mostly not. Um, and I know I wasn't coming from that place. You know, like I truly love extroverts and many of my friends are extroverted because we're so complimentary. Um, so I didn't really see it as polarizing. I saw it more as like, 
you know, about and for introverts and the extroverts who love them and work with them. And then with this too, I don't really see bittersweet as polarizing so much, but, but I did have the question of like, well, will everybody relate to this? And I guess at the end of the day, there's a sense in which like if only one person does, I don't really mean it that that would be enough because of course you want you want your work to be successful in a you know more conventional sense of course I'm not I don't want to pretend otherwise but I do feel like on an emotional level what I'm in it for is that amazing feeling of connection of like oh my god you feel that way too and now we can explore together what that feels like yes like that so that's why when you know the when you open the show by saying what the book had meant to you I was like, okay, my work is done. Like that, that was the most amazing feeling to me because that's, that's what I do it for. So yeah, if it's millions of people who feel that way, so much the better, but it doesn't have to be. If that well, makes your sense. Work is, your work is done. I was going to bring it full circle as well because <laughs> at the top saying, I can vouch, you did it for this person. It really meant so much to me and even more to sit down and kind of hash it out. Uh, it, it just was so satisfying. And I love that's such a good creative prompts to end with. What is that impulse that you have an experience where you're like, I just want to know, I just want to make this so that somebody can see it and be like, yeah, me too. Let's go there. Like that, it, whatever you got going on inside of you um, along those lines, like that is a powerful creative impulse. So I, I just love that. Th thank you so much for making time for this. And I, and I hope that I didn't gush too much because I am such a fan and, uh, it was just an absolute pleasure to get to talk all this through with you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It was a total joy to talk to you and I hope we can stay in touch for real. Like I really, really enjoyed connecting with you. Ah, uh, that means so much, Susan. Thank you. I wrote a song called The Longing Is Old Instead of calling you I'd hope that it solved me For now I'll go to where the reeds grow tall Fall flat and small I'm just incredibly grateful to have been able to sit down and have this conversation with Susan. As you can imagine, when you have that kind of experience with a book or an album or whatever from a creator, the dream of an experience of getting to really dive into the creation with the creator themselves is just out of this world. And um, I don't take it lightly. So thank you so much, Susan, for coming on the show. Everybody go buy that book and just devour it. It's been not only a powerful experience, but it's had an impact on me every day since I've read it. I've just been seeing life differently. That's the, the power of a good book. Go check it out. Thanks again, Susan. I hope that we get to talk again someday. Huge thanks to our patrons, our Patreon backers. You can support the show at patreon.com slash creative pep talk. We want to shout out Carrie Allison, one of our newest patrons thank you so much for supporting the show 
It's all kinds of hidden costs to running a podcast like this. We have the email list cost money, the, the editing, the uh, hosting, the transcripts, and blah, 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 all that stuff. And it really adds up. And Patreon helps ease the burden of that. So we really appreciate it. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our jingle and theme music and soundtrack. Huge thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show so fantastically each and every week. Huge, huge thanks to the rest of the Creative Pep Talk team, Ryan Appleton, Sophie Miller, Katie Chandler, podcast assistants, content, just easing my fears and, and encouraging me with inspiration and thoughts all throughout the week in our group texts and and everything else. So thank you all for making this possible. Thanks for listening. And until we speak again, stay sad and bittersweet. Uh, just kidding. Do do that, but mix it in with some pep and stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.